Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor and we have a bracing chat about culture wars with John Ronson coming up, plus a look at Labour's new front bench and their chances in the forthcoming by-elections. Joining me this week is Naomi Smith, Chief Exec of Best for Britain. Hi Naomi. Hi Ros. Let's deal with Omicron first, if only we could. About a quarter of Britons have already had their third jab and the government wants to roll it out to all adults by February. In the meantime, it's back to the dreaded self-isolation if you're in contact with an Omicron case. Will people start refusing to mix again, do you think, as Christmas approaches for fear of being pinged? Oh, well, I'm sure lots of us, particularly lots of our listeners, will start being more careful and change their plans a bit. So, for example, I'm not recording in the studio today because I'm trying to avoid the tube until I've had my booster. But I'm also sure that lots of people won't be turning their NHS app back on either. You might remember during the ping-demic a few months ago, its sensitivity was dialed down um, because apparently too many people were being pinged. It was too sensitive. And I don't know whether it's been tweaked back again in the face of Omicron. Um, And of course, while there'll be some of us scaling back any kind of crowded space fun, I do think more people will be willing to take risks this winter. And that relates to something I was saying on last week's show. There is this real misguided attitude among some people that because of vaccines, the pandemic is more or less over. And of course, this was an attitude that was explicitly encouraged by the government. I haven't done any proper analysis on this yet or seen anyone else do it, but I imagine dropping face masks entirely for the past few months, unlike many other countries around the world, will probably reduce compliance now that they've been reintroduced. And I I think that's what, what I really hate about the way this government has handled its COVID response is it's either full lockdown or total plague party. There's no in between. And I just think if some restrictions have been kept, it may have been easier now to convince people to be more careful. And almost certainly we would have had fewer deaths over the past few months as a consequence. Raphael Baer is a columnist for The Guardian. Hi, Raphael. Hi there. You've got to just add to that uh, a slightly flippant point, which may be inappropriate, but it might help that Omicron variant sounds like an airport thriller. I mean, you couldn't have actively <laughs> chosen anything more likely to make people think, OK, there's a you know, the, the scary plots development next. So, yeah, I, don't know. I doubt that will make any difference at all, but it certainly strikes me as a phonically aggressive sounding thing. You've been writing about Britain's peculiar relationship with France. How has the row over migrants crossing the Channel touched the nerves in the Franco-British relations? Uh, it, it, more or less every nerve has been jangled. Well, I mean, there, there are two things here, aren't there? One, you know, just generally that there is a problem that politically in the UK, Brexit was posited on, on the, among many things. The most important one was taking back control of the borders and, and the discovery that uh, you can't really do that if you've only got control of one side of the border and there's lots of people coming from France. Uh, and, and so there's such a, that's a, that's politically toxic for Boris Johnson, obviously, you know, if after having gone through all of that, there's still this sense that somehow migration is this, is a problem that the government can't get to grips with. Uh, and so therefore, almost by default, you have to sort of blame France for that. And there has been quite a lot of that going on. I don't, you could get into the details of, of, of the various agreements that between the UK and France, the key one being the, the 2K agreement which is actually bilateral, isn't an EU thing. You know, you feed into that the fact that President Emmanuel Macron is facing a, a presidential election next April and himself really, really 
can't be seen to be sort of taking instruction from the UK or have his policing in some way belittled. And so you get into this kind of cycle of slightly macho rhetoric uh, either way. And this, of course, comes off the back of a whole set of other little niggles and big ones. You know, the the, obviously the implementation of the Brexit agreement uh, is a big one. And France has really driven quite a hard line in Brussels on that, you know, taking a very maximalist position that the UK really just needs to just do what it's told in terms of implementing the deal. Uh, And the very specific grievance about, remember the uh, UK-US-Australia Security Partnership, or or AUKUS, uh, in which essentially the UK sort of gazumped France by selling some nuclear submarines to Australia. And that was really, uh, in terms of wounded French national strategic military pride uh, and all of the fallout from that and the way Boris Johnson then responded with a bit of kind of, Franglais jibing about donnez moi and break uh, and, and this sort of stuff when the French complained about it. It was all just every aspect of it was tedious and trivial and parochial and not what you need in a serious relationship between two UN Security Council permanent members, nuclear powers and the continent's uh, largest military strategic presences. Yes, and according to Le Canard Enchaîné, which is like a sort of French private eye, um, apparently Macron was called Johnson and Clown in um, private conversations, which I don't imagine will have gone down very well. Yeah, I read those comments and it, I mean, I speak okay French because I did study French, but uh, I, I struggled with some of the translation in because Macron was speaking quite idiomatic French, but Le Clown was very much a word that I could grasp. <laughs> yeah, there was another one which I didn't recognise and it apparently meant, you know, basically good for nothing, useless rustic, which I thought was also quite creative. <laughs> John Ronson is an expert on extremists. He He's the author of a series of books on conspiracy theorists and culture warriors, including Them, Adventures with Extremists, The Psychopath Test, as well as So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Now he's getting into podcasts too. The Butterfly Effect was an exploration of the myriad ways online porn has changed the world. And he's back with Things Fell Apart, a series that looks at the origins of our current culture wars. John, welcome to the show. Hi, hello. You're joining us from the States, aren't you? Yes. What's it like over there? Are you Omicron nervous too? Um, no, I, I, I mean, obviously I'm not happy with the, with the development, but I'm not yet panicking. I think the jury's still a little bit out about how much we should panic. In fact, I'm getting a train straight after this. I'll be wearing my mask like everybody else is. It was interesting hearing Naomi talk about pinging. There's no pinging here in the United States. I'm still not entirely sure what pinging entails. I guess I guess something happens on your phone, you get pinged, and then you have to yeah. go home. You can you can you can switch on an app basically, and if you're within range of somebody who is later diagnosed with COVID for mm. a certain period of time, then you get pinged. Basically, that you're then told to self isolate, and you get a countdown until you're allowed to come out again. Yeah, it's it's not fun. No pigging over here. But what Naomi said about um, how it can feel like a bit of a wildly swinging pendulum from very draconian measures through to no measures whatsoever. Uh, certainly, from America, looking at how Britain's dealing with the crisis, that's the impression I get. So, in the butterfly effect, you looked for ripples that create the waves of a culture war. And you did the same kind of thing with Things Fell Apart. Where did you see the early ripples that led to Brexit and the Johnson Premiership? Do you identify those as well? No, I, I, honestly, the 
uh, Things Fell Apart is very much about the earliest origin stories of the culture wars, and most of those took place in the United States. Now, a lot of them then migrated to the United Kingdom, so that Britain is beginning to think about what's called critical race theory, for instance, which began in the United States. But in terms of Brexit and Boris Johnson, I, you know, the same thing was happening as was happening in America at exactly the same time. There was a there was a rise of I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There was a rise of disillusionment among nationalists who felt that globalism was leaving them behind, and you know, you know all this stuff. And, and, at, and at the same time, unexpectedly. There was much more of it than we thought, and that's what happened. I was remember Billy, again, I would see Billy Bragg if do a show in New York between Brexit and the Trump presidency, and, and he was he was like, "Look, it happened in Britain. You have to be very careful. It could happen here." Now I don't know what 150 people at a church in Manhattan could have done to turn things around, but, <laughs> but he was right. This week on the show, we'll be talking about the Labour Party. Keir Starmer's reshuffled his shadow cabinet and the left doesn't like it. The public are visibly tiring of Boris Johnson, but can Labour take advantage? Plus, John will be back to talk about things fell apart. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we look into our crystal ball to predict what the next culture war battleground will be. Electric vehicles, the right to protest, boilers. Before we get started, our festive live show is in London next week. I'll be there at the Leicester Square Theatre with Dorian, Ian and Alex for an evening of quality Christmassy doomsaying. We've left space for social distancing and we are, of course, asking everyone to wear masks and we know that you are all jabbed. Don't miss out on tickets. Visit leicestersquaretheatre.com to get yours. And Patreon people, remember your ticket discount still works. And if you can't make it to the show, it will be streamed live exclusively for Patreons via Zoom. Invitations are out to Patreon people now. Search for us on Patreon and back us starting at just £2 a month. We'll see you there in person or ethereally like the ghost of Brexit past. Keir Starmer has reshuffled his shadow cabinet. It wasn't a seismic set of changes. It brings in Yvette Cooper as shadow home secretary, promotes David Lammy as shadow foreign secretary, Lisa Nandy to levelling up, whatever the hell that means, and the Corbyn loyalist Cat Smith was removed, and critic of the left wears streeting promoted. Meanwhile, a survey of Tory members puts Boris Johnson on minus 17% approval. Raphael, the Jeremy Corbyn ally John McDonnell didn't like this reshuffle at all. Is it another incremental shift to the centre by Keir Starmer? I don't, I don't think it's so incremental anymore, actually. I think it's quite a, a, a substantial statement of intent now that it, i mean yeah, we, i'm sure we've discussed this before on the podcast but essentially starmer got elected as labor leader by promising sort of to be all things to all people and very much that there would be some continuity with the corbyn era which might have been a, a tactically astute thing to do given what the membership view in the labor party was at that time either because he subsequently come to understand that continuity corbynism is just is an electoral cul-de-sac or because he always thought that but but was being uh, crafty uh, it doesn't matter one way or another he has clearly decided that he needs to just sort of leave that all behind some of the commentary that around that has sort of suggested it's a sort of a blairite revanche uh, i mean the word sort of blairism is sort of used now 
uh, is so casually to mean anyone who, who basically thought it was a terrible idea to have Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. It's not really a meaningful term. <laughs> so Yvette Cooper, for example, I mean, if anything, she was a brownite. That's the term yes. you don't use anymore. You know, or, and, yeah, and Rachel Reeves, you know, she, that's a sort of Millibandite, you know, the, the, the actual Blairism, right? You know, it, where, as, either as a sort of you know, foreign policy doctrine about liberal interventionism or as a public service agenda, which was about public-private partnership and reform as much as financing. That's been completely expunged from the Labour Party platform. There is no Blairism really left in the Labour Party anymore. What there is is anti-Corbynism, and that is now very strongly represented in the Shadow Cabinet. But they are different things. Naomi, are these good moves? Who do you rate in the new Shadow Cabinet? Um, yes, good moves. Uh, he's trying to obviously create what appears to be a competent, experienced front bench government in waiting uh, and considering that an election could be, you know, pretty much honest at any time now that the Fixed Term Parliament Act is being repealed. That's not a bad idea. Whether or not it's worked, it's too early to say, but it is certainly a strong lineup. And I'm not so sure that the chaotic execution helped, but I suspect that may have been a bit of a Westminster bubble thing that's gone largely unnoticed by the average voter in terms of who I rate. Reeves is obviously very good on economic detail. I think Lamy is a formidable communicator. Jonathan Reynolds is very pro-proportional representation um, and a good pluralist, so nice to see him there. Nandy doing towns full-time is clearly somewhere she has credibility and can shine. I'm sorry that Emily Thornbury isn't in a more prominent role because I think she's an excellent internationalist. Um, I think Wes will be very good in his brief. Philipson clearly a rising star and you know Yvette has always been a PLP heavyweight with experience of landing blow after blow on Johnson's government. So it's, it's a strong team, there's no denying that. Best for Britain has a new study out which predicts that if the opposition parties cooperated in 154 seats, the Conservatives would lose their majority. What do those seats look like? What do they have in common and how would it work? Uh, well, thank you for the uh, incredible bit of promotion there, Ross. Thank you very much. You can it's a pleasure. Read about it. Toby Helm wrote it up in the Observer last weekend. So our MRP polling, so this is this very granular seat level polling, um, feeds in a huge amount of data sets to get a much more accurate or likely result rather than just a traditional poll asking who you're going to vote for. What we found is that there are far from being 650 seats that all need to have deals done in order to get, get rid of the Conservatives. There's a, less than a quarter of the seats need to have some kind of pact in place. And when I say some kind of pact, um, unfortunately, a non-aggression pact doesn't look like it will cut it at the moment, um, that there would need to be standardsides for one election only. But the vast majority of those are seats where it would be the Liberal Democrats and the Greens having to stand aside for Labour. So out of that 154, it's nearly 130 where Labour are the strong contenders. Those seats broadly are splitting into red wall, blue wall. So LabCon seats in the north and LibCon seats in the south. But not not wholly true, and there is some you know peppering in between all of that. And of course, there are seats like Canterbury where you know, Labour um, uh, have have held those for the last couple of elections that hadn't traditionally. There are more Canterbury's about the place where um, it looks like Labour could break through if they don't fight each other. And unfortunately, under the bastardised voting system that we've got, it will be necessary for one election only for them to do this. Whether or not they will remains to be seen. But we have been seeing some much more positive noises coming from both camps, particularly uh, in the by-elections that we've seen this year already. Raphael, you wrote this week that a deal with smaller parties, in other words, a coalition, is going to be essential if Labour is going to oust the Conservatives at the next election. Britain has historically been wary about coalitions, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, the point in the column was really that actually, you know, coalition 
all politics is coalition politics, right? The Conservative Party is currently a coalition of the sort of traditional Conservative Party before, as it was before 2016, which itself has an authoritarian and liberal dimensions. And then the Brexit Party that was sort of swallowed and became part of the Conservative yeah. Party. So it's a kind of, a, you know, and, and the Labour Party, as we were just discussing, is basically a coalition of the Corbynite Radical Socialist Party and then the the, old, the, you know, the new Labour, what's left of it, and then the old Labour right, you know. So they're all blooming coalitions. Of course, because first past the post force is the parties to have to be broader coalitions than they would need to be if we had a proportionate system. Exactly. And so, but but the the fascinating thing is that although in in the very recent past, you've had a sort of a a regrouping of of the vote share into, in England at least, into Labour uh, and Tory, those shares have gone up and the sort of Lib Dems have gone right down. But broadly speaking, across the UK, when given the opportunity to vote for parties that aren't Labour or Tory, people really do. I mean, you know, so uh, you, you've had the SNP are in government in Scotland, right? So there aren't that, as many Labour seats in Scotland as there used to be. And those, those, those aren't coming back. Uh, Labour are already uh, relying on, uh, on a partnership deal with Plaid Cymru in, in Wales to govern. Uh, and at every single local election, you know, no overall control is a completely normal outcome that you get. And, you know, and we all know that across Europe, coalitions are normal. So coalition politics is actually a very normal thing. But there is this fascinating Westminster taboo, the idea that somehow if, you know, the failure to get the majority is treated as is kind of like, you know, a pearl clutching horror. It's you know, the gap between the, the, the highest vote share and the majority is treated as sort of obscenity that has to be covered, like, you know, like the policeman's helmet going over the genitals of the streaker running across the pitch. Yeah, everyone's going, you're horrified by this thing. It's like, no, that's just the way politics works out. Um, and so uh, really the point in the column, I mean, there are interesting things, you know, the, the sort of the partnership thing and the standing aside definitely fits into the category of things that are way easier said than done. And there are interesting reasons uh, why you know, that, sure. that would be necessary and also really interesting reasons why it could be really problematic, Which uh, one of which I think is that the kind of voters don't like to be whipped. They don't like to be told that, you know, you can't vote for the party that you like normally vote for. You have to go and vote for this other party instead. The very big danger that they will say, no, you don't get to tell me who to vote for. Uh, and also, as a result, the Tories then get to run a campaign, which is it's a massive anti-democratic stitch up. It's basically mm. people's vote 2.0, uh, you know. Even though UKIP and Brexit Party yeah, did it for them in 2017 yeah, and absolutely. 2019. Well, since, yes, the hypocrisy is not going to stop Boris Johnson, right? So, yeah, there, there, there are, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad idea at all. I think, you know, it, the the arithmetic makes it obvious, as you've described. It's just it, it's really interesting how you choreograph that in a way that doesn't end up having unintended political consequences. But as you say, in the by-elections that we've had, you know, so and the ones we're having actually in the next couple of weeks, the ones there's one tomorrow, which will already been in the past by the time this podcast goes out, probably. Old Bexley and Sidcup, uh, basically the Lib Dems more or less have given Labour a free run at that. And in North Shropshire, Labour more or less given the Lib Dems a free run at that one. And that has to be approved at the highest level. And they're never going to admit it. You know, Ed Davey and Keir Starmer are not going to come out and say, yeah, we basically, I said, we said to each other, you have this one, I'll take that one. But I find it hard to believe that quite close to that level of height in the parties, something like that conversation didn't happen. I think just a couple of things on that, uh, your point about voters not liking it. We polled people earlier this year and there was 64% of people rising to 70% of Labour supporters saying they would prefer parties that broadly agree with each other to work together at election time rather than fight each other. 
we also know from political studies association work that the vast majority of people cannot correctly name the second place party in their constituency, which does, I'm afraid, lead us to the conclusion that people do need to be guided on how to vote tactically because they get it wrong when left to their own devices. Yeah, and there was, you saw some of that, you know, the sophistication in that growing in terms of the apps and the devices, you know, the sort of websites. Uh, yeah, I think you can probably, you know, give the electorate a lot of credit for actually wanting to understand what's wrong with the voting system and work with the grain of it to try and get an outcome that they would prefer, which will often mean just how do I get the Tories out? So, Naomi, will a path to power for the left mean that there has to be both cooperation in some seats? So, parties standing aside in effect informally or formally to let each other have a clear run at the seat and then after the election results being open to doing deals the Labour being open to doing deals with smaller parties does it take both things? Well that's a fascinating question and I think it's it's worth saying that polls change and things are changing. We have seen some narrowing of the polls since the worst of the sleaze and corruption stuff came out over the last few weeks. Uh, and the poll that, 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 that we've been talking about earlier that Best of Britain did was done pre that. So always caveating with the fact that polls are a snapshot in time. And it was it was based on what would happen if there had been an election that day. But we are not looking at a scenario at the moment where Labour is going to form a majority government. That might change before the next election, but it is looking unlikely. What is looking possible is that if they are prepared to do deals with the opposition parties in fewer than a quarter of the seats around the country, then there is a prospect of a coalition government. It is still not going to return a Labour majority government and that that coalition will be reliant on the SNP. Now, of course, that is the difficult question, isn't it? What kinds of deals get done? What are the red lines for all of the opposition parties to come to the table together? Of course, for the Greens, almost certainly for the Liberal Democrats, changing the voting system is going to be their big ask of Labour. And Labour famously having not passed that PR motion at its conference earlier this year. For the SNP, highly likely that their ask is going to be another referendum on independence. And I think what all of this means is that if you are serious about taking power, because let's face it, you've got to, I think as Raf put in his piece earlier today in The Guardian, in order to share power, you've got to have it in the first place. If they are serious about getting power and being the largest party in a coalition and getting those keys to number 10, then the work needs to start now because these are complex negotiations. They are difficult things to hammer out. And how do you sell it internally to your activists that you're going to ask to stand down? How do you put it to your rivals north of the border who want something that is diametrically opposed to the position you take on the union. On that union question, Labour really needs to get its act together and do a proper constitutional commission. There is one, I think, underway. And as I understand it, Gordon Brown is tasked with leading on that. And they really need to be thinking about proper devolution for the English regions so that the disparity between Scotland and the rest of the UK in terms of its autonomy to govern isn't quite so stark as as it would be if there was a more equitable distribution of power to devolved regions of England um, so that Westminster wasn't such a dominant force. So all of that stuff needs to happen. They need to be having those conversations. And were I a, a, a parliamentary candidate or MP for 
Greens, Plaid, Lib Dems, Labour, I'd be asking my leaders, what are you doing to ensure that you're having those conversations so that I get that extra 5% vote share over to me by virtue of the other parties not standing or or whatever the arithmetic is. It is really interesting to think about the Greens and all of this because they have to an extent overplayed their hand in previous elections. They've stood down far more than the other parties have at great cost to them because it affects the amount of funding they get, because that uh, for opposition parties is pegged to your national vote share. So if you don't stand as many candidates and as many seats, your national vote share is reduced. Therefore, the funding that you get from from the state is reduced. And so for them, I think it's fascinating because regardless, our study shows that regardless of whether or not the Lib Dems stand, there are two dozen seats where the Greens do hold the balance of power. And by virtue of running, they deny a victory for the other opposition party in almost all cases, Labour uh, and the Conservatives either gaining or holding those seats. And so the Greens have actually got quite a lot of leverage to go into those kinds of negotiations. But the top line message to Starmer and to Davey and to an extent the other opposition party leaders is you've got to start talking now. An election could happen more quickly than than you want it to. And if you haven't started to build that trust and those relationships with each other, it's going to be too late to do it when you're facing down the barrel of an election where we are predicting that the Conservatives would return a majority again, albeit reduced. I bet Gordon Brown would love to be the person who solved the West Lothian question, although (laughs) he seems to be focusing mostly on vaccines at the moment. Ros, you are very familiar with a constituency that um, has just been vacated by Owen Paterson and therefore forcing a by-election that happens just before Christmas on the 16th of December. I'm, of course, talking about North Shropshire. What do you think is happening up there? What's your feel for that kind of seat and how they may be reacting to the situation they find themselves in now? I don't live there now, but I went to school there and I do go back occasionally. It's a, it's quite an unusual constituency. It's quite big and it's very heavily farmed. Farming interests are really paramount there. Of course, Owen Paterson argued when he was, before he was kicked out of the Commons, effectively, that he was representing his constituents' interests in lobbying for some of the farming industries there. There's also a lot of strong feeling about the NHS there and the Tory candidate may have got himself into a bit of trouble there. He's a barrister, he's a doctor, former army medical officer, but he lives in Birmingham. Birmingham and North Shropshire are very, very different places. And he's been wearing his barber around the place and, you know, putting on a putting on a country style hat, but it's not an entirely convincing transformation yet. And a an article has been dug up that he wrote for Conservative Home a few years ago, in which he said that the NHS, you know, was not basically not fit for purpose. Some parts of it really people ought to pay for, that won't go down very well. He also said quite recently that he found the clap for carers quite embarrassing. I kind of see what he means in a way, but I think that could well be misinterpreted. Mm. There are also issues around public transport there, which is pretty poor, and uh, fares for buses in particular are really sky high, you know, talking about six, seven pounds to go anywhere on a bus. He has promised to try and reopen a railway line between Osmastry and Gaboan, but it's a bit High in the sky. So the and I don't think sh- the government are particularly credible on uh, rail in the north at the moment. So I'm not sure that's no, well, a believable one. North Shropshire is not the north, of course, it is the Midlands, and people will be very keen to tell you that. But uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, the odds are shortening a bit on a Lib Dem whim, I think. And it will be, if, if there is a strong feeling that they want to send, local people want to send a message and they don't want to be taken for granted, I think 
there is a reasonable chance that at least his majority, the Conservatives' majority, will be cut substantially. Talking to me about his new podcast, Things Fell Apart, is John Ronson. John, you have a talent for persuading fairly extreme individuals to talk to you frankly. What's your strategy for drawing people in? Oh, a curiosity. And I'm also I'm not confrontational. I think if you fill your head with ideology and a confrontational bent, then there's no room to be curious. And when you're curious, I interviewed somebody, I interviewed a very divisive figure for the last episode of, of um, Things Fell Apart yesterday. Um, we're halfway through the series, but we're still finishing the series. And because I wasn't confrontational with her, I, I think we saw sides of her that the world just doesn't know. These days, I only ever really approach people who I'm deeply interested in, who I'm very, who I've been spending ages thinking about and researching and going down rabbit holes. And I think that curiosity uh, rubs off on people. Yeah, there's a quality to your voice that just, it's its very curious. It's genuinely interested. Many interviewers don't actually sound like that. They just sound as if they're going through the motions. But you sound as if you really want to know. It does make a difference. Yeah, passion is, I was, yeah, I was just watching an interview with Peter Jackson yesterday. And he was like, you know, what? I, I wouldn't have made this documentary about the Beatles if I wasn't incredibly passionate. Why do anything if you're not incredibly passionate about it? And he's right. So let's talk about the culture wars. There's a slightly lazy assumption that the culture wars somehow emerged with the Trump era. And of course, what you show in this series is that's just not true. You go back much further than that to look for the roots of these divisions to the 70s and 80s in America and the way that Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, changed how Americans thought about each other. Did you expect to find the roots of the culture wars in religion? My first idea for Things Fell Apart was to go back to the 1920s and look at the Hollywood Code. And I thought maybe the first great culture warriors were the women of the 20s, like Mae West and Norma Shearer, these actresses who were very kind of loose and, you know, jazz agey. And then they were silenced by, you know, these new conservatives who took over Hollywood. So that was my original beginning of the show. Uh, the reason why I didn't do it was because my producer Sarah and I decided that we just wanted people. We wanted, we didn't want any experts. We wanted participants, people who got caught up in culture wars. And so obviously all those people were dead. So then what happened in real life was that between the 1920s and the 19, and the late 60s, early 70s, there were kind of no culture wars. The evangelical right were silent. They went to their own churches. They consumed their own media. But then, as a result of busing and diversity of thought in school textbooks, that's what motivated the evangelical right in the early 1970s to become radical. And that's how the culture wars that we live in today, that overwhelm us today, began. Yes, I hadn't thought about it, but of course, prohibition in the 1920s is an obvious place, isn't it? I could have started the show with the Great Migration. Just, I don't actually know the, the numbers, but you know, great numbers of African-Americans moving from the South up to Chicago and New York. And then came the Harlem Renaissance, um, the Jazz Age. And that was, that was the first great moral panic of modern times. You know, these new dances are going to corrupt our white women and so on. So I, I could have started there. But, but as I say, then everything just went silent for 50 years. I guess the evangelical right didn't want to fight 
about anything in the 1950s because the 50s was kind of going the way that they wanted uh, with housewife culture and, and conformity and so on. And then in the 60s, sure, they burned some Beatles records, but that came and went pretty quickly. I feel kind of obliged to talk about the Vietnam, though, in this context, because the late mm. 60s and early 70s, that surely that is a pretty substantial social fault line that created these kind of liberal conservative tribes, different sides, and which, which then, you know, when you see like the sort of the arguments about Clinton and whether he dodged a draft and John Kerry and the Swift Boat veterans, all this stuff, it all reached, which was culture war stuff, really, or very partisan political stuff, really reached back to, to that late 60s political mm. Yes, I, I think that's true. I think what was happening from about 1968 onwards is what eventually galvanised the Christian right into becoming warriors. But they didn't really become warriors for a few years. It took, you know, it took like three or four years. It took to the early 70s for them to actually do anything about it. So before Vietnam, what was there? What was the counterculture? It was like the beat poets, like Allen Ginsberg. They wouldn't have seemed threatening. It was only when those voices suddenly found their way into school textbooks, actually. That's that's really when it all began. That's when school buses were shot at and when schools were firebombed. Is that, is that a generational thing, do you think, John? Is that basically when the sort of baby boomers, I just always think of sort of Clinton becoming president being the point where the sort of people who'd been looked down on as kind of slightly loose, long-haired layabouts 20 years earlier, suddenly in these positions of authority and power, one of them even ends up, president in the White House, you know, which is almost as insulting to a lot of conservatives as, as the idea of a, a black man in the White House, uh, you know, another 10 or so years later. That, that, was that was it to sort of when, as it were, the counterculture sold out and became the establishment, then the actual conservative people felt even more affronted and decided to react against that? That probably didn't make any sense, but maybe you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I'm, well I'm, I'm holding on to the word that you started with, which was generational. And I think, yes, I think... It's really interesting to look at culture wars in generational terms. So one really clear example of this, which I look at in, later on in the series, was how second wave feminism uh, mutated into third wave feminism. That was very generational. You know, every generation comes along wanting to change what they perceive to be the problems of the older generation. You know, we, we, I'm sure everybody sitting around this table felt that way. Um, oh, we, I don't like that. I'd never change it. And yeah, so I, I would say that every new culture war, there is an element of a generation wanting to better the older generation. So the first episode in Things Fell Apart is called A Thousand Dolls, and it's about a family whose books and films weaponized the issue of abortion in America. Before that, which surprised me a lot, evangelicals hadn't been very keen to talk about abortion. I mean, most saw it as a matter of personal conscience. Tell us how they achieved such a fast turnaround in the way that people began to think about abortion in America. Yeah, it's a stunning and really unknown story. It's this teenage kid growing up in the Alps in the 60s, Frank Schaefer. His father was a kind of Willy Wonka type art historian, a Christian art historian, who got three and a half million dollars to make a Christian art history series. It was supposed to be a kind of evangelical response to Kenneth Clark's Civilization, if anybody remembers that old series from the time. Uh, but it was art history. Anyway, Francis Shapes' son, Frank, the teenager, wanted to be an avant-garde Hollywood filmmaker like Fellini. So he convinced his dad to let him direct this documentary. And he put in all of these like extraordinary visual images. A lot of them were around abortion. Frank was a teenage father at the time, 19, and had a baby. 
I so decided to put some abortion stuff into this Christian art history documentary. And evangelicals just weren't interested. They were pro-choice. Billy, Billy Graham was pro-choice. Christianity Today, the biggest Christian evangelical newspaper in America, was pro-choice. So what happened was eventually the mainstream media wrote about, this was after, you know, a long time of them trying to drum up interest, um, wrote about these this weird anti-abortion avant-garde film that was being shown in half-empty stadiums in America that motivated Planned Parenthood to turn up and start to protest outside the Schaefer film screenings. And then that gave the evangelicals something to do. They would counter-protest. They were already annoyed with feminists, but not because of abortion, because of wanting to go to work and bra-burning and all that kind of stuff. Even though I don't think there was very much bra-burning, by the way. I'm not sure many many bras burned. Uh, and that's how it started. And then the, then the media were thrilled because they had people yelling at each other outside stadiums, so they had something to write about. Uh, that's how the abortion culture was started, cut to 30 years later. And, you know, troubled, unstable men who watched Frank Schaefer's arresting visual images murdered doctors, murdered people. And Frank Schaefer, his politics have changed a lot since then. He shows real remorse about what he did. Yeah, he's Frank's very left-wing now, totally remorseful, has completely changed, entirely pro-choice, very apologetic. There's very little room for changing your mind in the current political climate, and that's, I think, why this was a particularly striking episode. Why do people find it so hard to do, do you think? <laughs> That's interesting. It's like, I've, I've always been a little suspicious. Like, I, I get it. That, you know, what's the worst thing a politician can do? Flip-flop. Flip-flopping is considered this terrible, terrible thing. Uh, and by, by us, by everybody. And I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, whether we should consider flip-flopping to be quite as much of a weakness as we do. It's surely another way of looking at that is evolving and, you know, and changing your mind and becoming more mature and looking at things differently. Particularly in Britain, we have some odd ideas about how to judge other people. Another one is, is just the adversarial interviewing. Why do they think that the way to get to who somebody really is is to, like, scream at them? If I'm being kind of yelled at in a deeply adversarial situation, I, I, I splutter and I blurt things out. But that doesn't mean you're getting to the heart of who I really am. It means you're yelling at me and then judging me by the by how I deal with being yelled at, which almost feels like a kind of prison situation. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but it's something I'm glad I said. Well, it helps to explain why people don't don't change their minds because it's such a it, you naturally become defensive when you're in a situation. You don't, as you say, become more open to change. Yeah, your you mind. double down. I mean, how many times has somebody like finish a Jeremy Paxman interview on Newsnight and come away thinking, you know what, he's right. The way you yelled and screamed, he's right. I've learned a valuable lesson. No, you come away thinking, what. Fucking asshole Paxman was. I'm going to double down and retreat to my corner, which is what we all do on social media all the time. On the changing your mind, I, I think it's a small. It seems like a small thing, but that 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 Thatcher Margaret Thatcher conference speech where she said, "You turn if you want to." The lady's not for turning. Mm. Uh, I think really embedded, certainly in Westminster culture, this idea that, that the definition of political strength is never backing down mm. uh, and never apologising. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't swear to the fact that before that everyone was terribly open about saying, "You know, on, on second thoughts, maybe this is a terrible policy. Let's do something different." But that's that's really culturally sort of iconic. And the point about uh, people. You know, why, why culture wars 
make it so hard for people to uh, to change their mind. I saw some very interesting research on this recently, actually, a woman called Liliana Mason, Professor Liliana Mason, who's looked at this and she has this concept of basically the sort of the, the sort of mega identity cluster. So if you have originally, let's say you, you, you vote Republican and you have uh, views on gun control and you have views on abortion and you have views on education, and those are sort of four discrete things. Someone might disagree with you about gun control, but maybe sort of slightly share your view on abortion and be a Democrat. And, you know, you can compartmentalize this stuff. And what the culture wars seem to have done is they've, they've fused all those things together in one. So an attack on one bit of it becomes an attack on your whole identity and who you are. So someone saying, you know what, actually, maybe you shouldn't sell AK-47s to children isn't just a point about public safety. It's a point about who you are as an American, your religion, your belief, your views about family, everything gets sort of dragged down in that one assertion. So it's impossible to disentangle your views on one thing from your basic sense of self-esteem and identity. And then we're in trouble once that starts. Yeah, I I agree. And you could say the same for mask wearing and vaccinations. I mean, to to see how those issues became so such culture war wedge issues too. It was very dispiriting, I think. It just shows that like everything becomes a culture war issue eventually. Well, let's talk about one of the latest flashpoints, both here and in America. What is sometimes called woke culture, and I don't use that term in a disparaging way, although it is sometimes used in a disparaging way. Thinkers like Yasha Mankoff Persuasion, for example, are pushing back against aspects of this, warning that it's an elite performative discourse that it isn't taking ordinary people with it. Has he got a point? First, let me just, you know, and apologise in advance for sounding holier than thou, but I, I never like I never liked the term well being used. I'm not saying that you did this, but the way the, the right and the centre use the word woke always kind of bugs me because the term woke came from black culture and is now being used as a way to mock people who believe in things, by and large. So I always think it's, I always think it's, it's a shame that that term has become so ubiquitous now. Um, but do they have a point... Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> to, to, to a great extent. Um, of course, you know, there's certain things that the left do that are illiberal. I'll give you one example of just something that I noticed the other day. I was listening to this podcast called You're Wrong About, um, which is a very good podcast debunking things and critical thinking and so on. It's a, and it, from a leftist perspective, and it's a really good, really smart presenter. It's very, very popular over here, like a top 10 podcast. Anyway, they, they were doing an episode about how cancel culture is a moral panic. And it doesn't really exist. And I was, you know, going along with this and thinking, you know, this is very interesting and it's true that a lot, a lot of people are terrified that they're going to be cancelled and, and they're not. And, and so there are elements of moral panic. And then the presenter said, and the reason why, so there's two reasons why this moral panic is sweeping the world. And I can't remember what the first one is, but the second one was me. They said, John Ronson, uh, wrote a book called, <laughs> called, called Say so You've Been Publicly Shamed. And that must and, have taken a bit of your back when you suddenly heard yourself being discussed well, on it. Well, but the first thing I thought was, ooh, I'm, I'm responsible for a moral panic, uh, like Geraldo Rivera in the 80s, like doing satanic panic stuff on mainstream TV. Um, but I carried on listening. And the bit that really bugged me, which is kind of circling back to, to the question, they said, um, yeah, John Lance's book has been publicly shamed, and especially the excerpts of the New York Times, which told the story of Justine Sacco, a woman who was publicly shamed for doing something unambiguously racist. 
Now I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically the sentiment of what they said. And that annoyed me so much for two reasons. Firstly, because I don't think that Justin Sucker's tweet was unambiguously racist. But the main reason why it bugged me was because the you know the presenter didn't allow people to, to, to read the tweet. They didn't say what the tweet was. They just told people what they should feel about the tweet. And that just felt very authoritarian and controlling. And I think when you veer into authoritarianism, wherever you are on the spectrum, you're getting into a problematic area. And, and I thought that's a bad tactic, you know, to tell people that something was bad without telling them what it was. Of course, the opposing argument is that discussions about culture wars and disproportionate shaming, they distract from the idea that sometimes justice should be served in an unjust world. And if some people get caught up in the crossfire, that is unfortunate, but inevitable. Is a certain amount of shaming useful in society? I mean, I'm not talking about scarlet letter. Can Is a certain amount of, can it be useful? Oh, sure. I, I'm very happy to be living at a time of such sort of, social change. I love the fact that television is is much more diverse now. There's much more opportunity to hear, you know, different voices and different perspectives. And and there's an element of shaming in, in all of those changes, no no doubt. You know, it began, you could say, with, you know, the Oscars So White campaign, which had a you know, which was shaming the Oscars and had a very tangible impact, positive impact. But it behooves each of us, you know, we're the ones with the, we're the ones holding the weapons. We're the ones, so we, it's a kind of, we all are. So it really is down to us to figure out. We're the judges here. It's up to us. It's down to us to figure out, uh, is that disproportionate? Is that unfair? Is that not really shaming what it, you know, is that bullying? Are we destroying somebody? Are we impacting their mental health in a in a disproportionate way? So it's very important that we have the critical thinking skills to identify between what is positive progress and what is authoritarian, cruel bullying. John, I've got a question for you, actually. Um, in You've been publicly shamed. There was such a, a sort of great forensic understanding of, of the, the accelerating dynamics of the internet in terms of uh, people's behavior. And then in the new podcast series, you kind of reach right back in time to the the sort of origin stories of these culture war myths that predate the new technology. And Mm. one of the questions I'm constantly asking myself about this is how much of this is new? How much of it is sort of manufactured by the technology? How much of it is just the technology sort of adding salt to something that was already there? Is it qualitatively different? And, you know, or was it ever thus, you know, we think about the way that even newspapers, magazines, novels back in the day were accused of corrupting people's morals. So having sort of seen both sides of this, what's your instinct on that point? Well, there's a there's a Mark Twain quote: uh, "History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes." And I do feel that the culture wars that are wildly overwhelming us right now are a rhyme of culture wars that have been happening since the early 1970s and and before, you could say, since the American Civil War. But I think with the birth of the internet, there has been a very significant change. We have to think about who. Who designed the internet? And in fact, episode five of Things Fell Apart, which as we speak is next week's episode, uh, looks at the very birth of the internet. I find the very first person in history to be publicly shamed because of something that they did online. What that program looks at is how the internet was designed by libertarians. Uh, They were engineers and tech utopians. So the internet was 
very actively and consciously designed on libertarian, unencumbered, free speech, utopian principles, which turned out to be very profitable for the tech companies too, because unencumbered free speech leads to division and outrage, which leads to increased profits for the for the tech companies. So I think it was always there, but a very deliberate effort was made by these Stanford utopian engineers to create a world in which these ideas would just turn people dizzy. A moment happened in the late 80s, which I'm looking at in episode five, where a decision had to be made. Do we allow free speech to just, do we just allow machines to grow however machines should grow and not interfere in any way whatsoever, even if that means filling the internet with the most offensive speech and lies? Or do we do something about the offensive speech and lies? And what they decided was to do nothing. They strongly and angrily decided to do nothing because you can't interfere with machines. And that's the world we've been living in ever since. Let's just talk briefly about Twitter, because that's where so much of this goes on. Mm. Jack Dorsey quit the company earlier this week. If you took over his job, what changes would you make to Twitter? You know, I've really felt angry with you know, the people who run Twitter for, for a long, long time. It always felt like they were promoting highly selective empathy. It felt like, I can't remember who said this, I read this the other day, and it's a big paraphrase, but something like, you know, sometimes the Twitter leadership feel like the cool teacher at school who kind of sides with the bully, but in a sort of slightly plausible deniability way. Uh, That's and, a great analogy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but saying all of that, the last couple of years, Twitter really, I mean, it, you could say it's way, way, way too late. But the last couple of years, Twitter has been making a concerted effort to try and redress the balance a bit and change things. They've just introduced this new thing about all private videos being banned, videos of private people. I'm not sure, you know, how well that will work. What would I do? I'd introduce an edit button and, and we'd figure out the problems afterwards. <laughs> and there would uh, be there would be problems and of course yeah. they kicked off trump you're in the u.s does it feel like a second trump term is a distinct possibility now oh yes yeah it really does what would it take to to preempt that is it possible even yeah i, I but it has to be it has to be from within the democrat party i was reading about a uh, pete Buttigieg kamala harris ticket as a possibility because you know pete's popular and Kamala is less popular. Well, Kamala is, is, is a little less popular. I think if Trump decides to stand, then he'll get the nomination, no question. The Democrats really have to pull some fantastically charismatic Obama-type person out to beat him. I'm, I'm genuinely worried that, that there could be a second Trump term if, if he wants to stand. And, and who, you know, on my God, the lack of constraints... It's terrifying the thought of it. We're nearly at the end of the show, so it's time to find out the stories that you may have missed on Under the Radar. Naomi, what have we missed out on? Well, I'm not sure if, if everyone's missed this, but we're certainly not talking about it in another part of the show, so I thought I'd raise it because uh, it was such a shocking story to me, and that was that a group of fishermen in Hastings allegedly stopped an RNLI boat from launching to rescue migrants in the channel. Um, and the fishermen were recorded saying, don't bring 
any more of them back, we're full. That's obviously a, a, a horrifying um, and, and shocking story to hear about. I think it happened before we had uh, the, the disaster of the Channel deaths last week, um, but was only reported on this week. But among the outrage is the news now that Priti Patel has bowed to pressure, thankfully, and will be amending her very egregious nationality and borders bill to protect the RNLI and other charities from being prosecuted for rescuing asylum seekers in the channel. And this very controversial piece of of legislation would make it a criminal offence to, uh, and I think the direct quote from the bill is, facilitate the entry of asylum seekers by taking them ashore, even if not done for payment or any kind of criminal gain. But Padel has now tabled an amendment to her own bill, creating a specific legal exemption for those who are genuinely doing rescue Uh, And the clause says that somebody cannot be prosecuted for an act done by or on behalf of or coordinated by Her Majesty's Coast Guard. And it would be a defence to show the people brought ashore had been in danger or or distress at sea. So I'm obviously very pleased that this amendment has gone in, but remain totally appalled that the government even considered penalising the RNLI in the first place. Um, And I really hope that listeners will chuck the charity a bob or two. Raphael, how about you? Um, well, just very quickly, I'd also add to that that actually, I, I think it's 1951 or 1952, but anyway, the UN Convention on, on, on the Rights of Refugees very explicitly says you shouldn't criminalise or penalise people for the fact of entering a country illegally. So that the law that Priti Patel is trying to introduce is, is basically full frontal uh, contravention of uh, UK commitments under international human rights. We could talk so much about that awful bill. But anyway, the, there's something a different area of the pitch altogether. It just caught my eye, something, uh, uh, something that was reported in the Financial Times, actually, a few years ago, before the pandemic, so it feels like about 100 years ago, as part of its uh, industrial strategy, the UK decided to set up a national UK vaccine manufacturing centre, which was going to help develop surge capacity uh, in the event of terrible pandemics. You could maybe sort of produce vaccines to scale, uh, which it turns out was quite a good idea. Then bizarrely, right now, the Treasury, feeling short of a few quid, has decided to sell it off. There was, a, there was a, just a great quote um, from someone familiar with this decision. So that's, I'm, pre- I'm presuming, someone inside the Treasury in terms of this this plan to sell this thing that it strikes me as something, not a bad thing for the UK government to actually have and develop, uh, given everything we've learned over the last 18 months. And the, the quote was, uh, the worry was there would be a surge in vaccine manufacturing requirements and we'd need surge capacity. And that reason is gone. Uh, thinking, has it has it really personally familiar with the uh, with the with the deal? I'm not entirely persuaded by that. So I just think, just in terms of a government, really not. Yeah, just just the short sightedness of it. The, the fact that it, sort of the idea that actually we have some industrial strategy and the state is back and intervening and the pandemic changes everything. It's just just not true, is it? Yeah, it's just the treasury being what the treasury always was and the government being what it always was. So that well, to be horribly cynical, I suppose you could suggest <laughs> that a friend of a Tory MP snaps it up um, at this price and then is able to lease it to the government for a very high price <laughs> next time Don't that we need to manufacture loads of vaccines. <laughs> Not that that would ever happen. John, what have we missed uh, this week? I'm, I'm afraid I've, I've got about that. I've got a somewhat solipsistic one because it just happened <laughs> just before we went on the air. So over the last couple of months, we said earlier about how everything becomes a cultural issue in the end. And one of my books did, I, 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 it turns out that a school in Arizona 
had not only banned one of my books, but had suspended two of the teachers and the principal for teaching it. Uh, they were put on leave, uh, or, or not for teaching it, but for um, offering it as a summer read for the senior high school students who were about to go to university. But I just discovered just before going on air that the two teachers uh, have been reinstated. So it's a it's a happy ending story. I was just oh, very good. delighted to hear it. Yeah. What was the justification briefly for this? Well, it was from Saving Publicly Shamed, which if anyone's read it knows it's a book about public shaming and it's a very sort of responsible book with, and I'd never really thought about this until now, with a, a brief throwaway bestiality gag. Uh, and also a brief description of, of a porn set that I visited. And it was those, it was these these very in-passing jokes that caused the trouble. It's always the jokes, isn't it? The internet has, and it has killed a whole idiom, a whole sort of tone of voice, inflection. Um, oh, I could go on about that. But yes, there, there's oh, something yeah. that there's, we've re- that's, that's one that's going to be a substantial cultural change i think is i i agree with you the death of nuance ambiguity double meaning in art i've i've really been noticing that lately that it's just become less likable to have unreliable narrators if they're if they have sort of troublesome beliefs and and, and so on you know all the things that i love reading between the lines nuance double meaning there, there seems to be much more of an impetus these days to explain exactly what you mean there was a great example of this I saw recently, a, a, a professor who gave a lecture uh, building, and you know, you know Swift's The Modest Proposal, where originally he, he talked about you know, how the solution to, to, to problems in Ireland was for uh, the Irish to sort of sell their children and people to eat them. And it was, it was obviously a sort of a vicious satire about the, actually the callousness of, of, of England at that time. And some uh, a scientist updated this uh, and made a point about how you know, one that you could solve a lot of public health cost problems by driving ambulances more slowly and then people would die and you'd save a lot of money. And obviously he was making the exact opposite point it was just it was, it was a dark joke to illustrate you know predicated on the fact that clearly no one would actually believe this and therefore i'm doing a kind of reductio ad absurdum that was the idea except the video of him doing it ended up online and then he it basically it became part of the QAnon conspiracy theory because people are sharing it saying look look the cat's out of the bag they've actually this they're, they're, they're being open about the evil plan and he tried you know in vain to say no no it was a joke yeah. um but you can't explain it and they, that was really depressing and then so he ended up fueling kind of QAnon stuff, mad conspiracy oh, theories. Oh God! Yeah. My personal beef with this is that everything has to be has to be qualified by an emoji. You mm. you cannot say anything yeah, without yeah, yeah, with, yeah. in some way having to explain the tone and voice in which you are trying to say it by use of an emoji. Yes, uh, it, it drives me insane. Anyway. <laughs> No, I agree. I, I, you know, my favourite art is often ambiguous, nuanced art where, where they mean the opposite of what they're saying and so on. A classic example is, is Randy Newman's songs. He's written an entire canon over decades, which do that all the time. Uh, and I love it. And it's just, it's a shame to see it become a sort of frightening form of art. Things Fell Apart is out now on BBC Sounds. And that's the show. Thank you very much, Naomi. Thanks for having me. Raphael Baer. Uh, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you. And John Ronson. Thank you. Stay tuned for our extra bit for Patreons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers.
from me, it's thanks to Jeff Turrell, Liz, Richard Maguire, Quinton Tudor Evans, Chris Shaw, Gary McVeigh, Emma Jackson and Caroline Richardson. And a big hello and many thanks from me to Paul Capel, Sam Corner, Alistair Gellan, Richard Miller, Roger Merritt, Helen Fullside, Alex J. Murray and David Hawkins. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ross Taylor with Naomi Smith and Raphael Baer. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese, the second most famous Welshman on this podcast. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. In the main show, we look towards next week's big stories in Under the Radar. This week on The Extra Bit, we're going a bit further. What does the panel think is the next culture war battleground that will divide the world? Starting with Naomi, what do you predict? (laughs) (laughs) Predictions, predictions. The things that we all hate being asked most on this podcast, unless we get them wrong. Sorry. Um, (laughs) What's on the checklist for a culture war? I'm sure John um, has got one handy. No, I don't. I'm hoping, mean, I'm hoping that you can come up with one and I can say that that was the one that I was thinking of as well. <laughs> I thought well, nothing. Always, I'm sitting here panicking. I'm thinking, God, how long have I got? Like about a minute and a half to think of something. <laughs> All right, I'll join this out and give you a bit more time. I, I think it's, it's almost certainly has to be completely ridiculous to you and I to involve a misrepresentation of something taken completely out of context and constructed to distract people from the real war that's being waged on them by extremely wealthy interests who are hell-bent on reducing your standard of living or taking away your democratic rights or or trashing the planet. Um, That was a trailer for the bonus Fringe event in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. It really does help us to keep going. And don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else?, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Thanks for listening. See you next week.